0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest wingless thrush edition. It's Wednesday, November 28th, 2018. On today's show, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, it's the latest from the Coen brothers. This one is uh, both in theaters and streaming on Netflix simultaneously. And then Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, her four-volume literary masterpiece. It's now a gourmet streamer on HBO. We'll discuss with Slate's own Willa Paskin. And finally, the art, the challenge of adapting novels to the screen. And uh, joining me today is... uh, God, I'm so Pavlovian. I'm so close to just saying Slate's editor-in-chief. You got, I don't know, you got some fancy title over there in Los Angeles. What is it?
1: The deputy managing editor uh, at the Los Angeles
2: Times. Okay. Let's let's see how long it's going to take, Steve, to learn that title. I'm betting on about two years.
0: I think, (laughs) but, you know, it's a kind of rate of change problem. It's like a train leaves Chicago at 2 p.m. heading towards New York, but one leaves New York. It's a question of whether she's made editor-in-chief of the LA Times before I actually (laughs) learned this. So I'm just going to say Julia Turner, uh, editor-in-chief of the LA Times. And of course, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, hey, Steve.
0: All right, let's dig right in. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's the latest, as I said, from the Coen brothers. It's both on Netflix and in theaters. What it is is really an anthology of short films about the Old West. Opens on an image straight out of John Ford buttes and canyons under a Huge sky, and ends on a on another really taken from John Ford. A group of comically mismatched travelers in the stagecoach. In between, we meet a limbless thespian, a dandy gunslinger, a singing prospector, varmints, and quote unquote savages. The six miniature films feature Tim Blake Nelson, James Franco, Liam Neeson, Tom Waits, who's wonderful, Zoe Kazan, who's also wonderful. I should say, Tyne Daly, various others. Why don't we listen to a clip?
2: You gentlemen, mind if I take his spot?
0: If and you play his hand. I would prefer not to. It is too late. You have regarded the cards.
1: You seen him, you play him. I ain't any. It's the other hombre, aren't it? You seen him, you play him.
2: And if and I don't? play them cards fancy Dan can't no one compel another man to engage in recreation certainly not a son of a gun as ill-humored as yourself and as for names my horse is Dan I'm Buster
3: Buster Scruggs Buster Scruggs the run from Riata pass and this pistol
0: All right, Dana, let's let's start with you. So, you know, as I said, it sort of opens with this very John Ford uh, panorama uh, shot, I guess it's Monument Valley or or something quite like it. And and then you get this, you know, white, head to toe, white clad dandy on a horse singing a song, Buster Scruggs. And very, very soon after you get a set of sort of John Fordy reminiscent shots, you get a shot from inside his guitar out through the hole. And you're like, no, nah, I'm not in a John Ford movie. I'm in a Coen Brothers movie. I know you have mixed feelings about being in that universe. How do you feel about uh, this one?
2: Yeah, I mean, mixed feelings isn't quite right. It's just, yeah, the Coens are, are like a long and complex story to me. And something that I've said about their films before seems to apply to this one, to me in particular, which is that I sometimes think of their movies as collectibles on a shelf as opposed to experiences that the viewer goes through. They're so meticulously crafted and they're so cleverly worded and they're so full of references to Hollywood that are kind of slightly twisted in that Cohen-esque way that I often find myself watching them with this cold aesthetic remove. And I know that there is a counter argument that they make plenty of movies that are not cold at all, or that even the movies that appear to be cold have this blood running under the surface. And that could be said about this one at times, too. I want us to get into that. I think depending on the story, it varies. Uh, To me, this was a minor entry in the Coen Brothers genre and maybe not one of my favorites, but it's up to all kinds of fascinating things. And, uh, And I can't wait for us to talk about it. I mean, that clip that we heard from the very first story, the Tim Blake Nelson story that's about the actual title. Character Buster Scruggs is very atypical in the sense that we heard this kind of charming verbal interplay, right, that sounds a little bit like a spoof of, a, of an old fashioned Western. But only seconds after that clip ends, we get all kinds of gory mayhem in mm-hmm. which Buster yeah. Scruggs himself, the white hatted hero who we've been kind of encouraged to love, although because he sings to us on his white horse playing his guitar, but he's also quite menacing in his way. Anyway, he is just is every bit as amoral and bloodthirsty as everybody else in this Wild West universe. And so that very first story, the Buster Scruggs story, sets the tone for the rest of the movie, which is that anything can happen and that the deserving people are not necessarily going to make it out.
0: Julia, I we've done Hail, Caesar. And if, uh, if my memory serves me... Inside Lewin Davis, as the two Cullen brothers movies that we've talked about in whatever, 10, 11 years we've done the show. Um, I I don't have a firm sense of where you stand on their their work.
1: I would say that I have been sympathetic to the position articulated by Dana and by David Haglund in the pages of Slate that um, there is something so cynical and canny and clever about the Coen Brothers movies, that they can leave you cold despite their obvious art and wit. Um, And I think this is my favorite Coen Brothers movie that I've ever seen. I felt so hard for this. I think it is so beautiful. Um, And I have found myself returning to it and thinking about its themes and thinking about its images more than I ever have with a Coen Brothers film before, um, in part, I think, because of the vignette structure, which um, allows them to play off their fascinations and interests uh, and, and iterate them, these, this obsession with death and justice and mercy and um, uh, the, the difficulties of finding happiness and comfort in a Bleak, vast, lonely, wind blowing, pioneering, tumbleweed having expanse, um, so beautifully, and I can't quite, I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, in a way, this movie almost felt like a poem, with each little chapter being its own verse and something you could pick over and interpret later. And I am aware of the fact that calling something poetic is often a critical cheat way to be like, it was just kind of beautiful and I loved it. I'm not sure what it meant, but mm-hmm. ooh, it was poetic. But um, I loved this film. I loved this film. I keep thinking about it. I can't stop thinking about it.
0: I will split the difference here. I mean, I, I, I agree with Dana that there's something about the coldness and kind of exquisite wit uh, that's very distancing about the cons and they best movies I cherish. I mean, one of my Half dozen, dozen favorite movies of all time is Miller's Crossing. I just think it's a complete masterpiece. When they hit a high, every few movies they, they've made, you know, just an enduring, enduring film. But, um, uh, but they're but in general, the average Coen Brothers movie leaves me like really cold. But then I think about they repeat on me in ways that are totally unexpected. I mean, a good example being both Inside Lou and Davis and Hale Caesar, neither of which meant very much to me in the theater, uh but stayed with me because they thought they've thought so it's not only that they are meticulous uh, and it's not only that their production design and their cinematography are exquisite it's that they've they their thematic thinkers in a way that isn't necessarily very common in American movies, even independent American cinema. And they are really, really trying to think through, you know, what is this bizarre eternal return of the same of the person who wants desperately to be famous, Lewin Davis, but isn't Bob Dylan? Like, so what's the difference between genius and talent, you know, and isn't being a talented person in its own way, a kind of purgatory in which you're just destined to repeat over and over and over again, uh, the facts of your own mediocrity, or hail Caesar, which is like, well, what kind of an empire is the American Empire in relation to its desire to make in the nineteen, I guess, fifties or whenever, gi- you know, gigantic, um, uh, uh, spectacular movies about the Roman Empire and. Um, and you know, similarly here, this is a movie. It's like it, it, you you learn very quickly that this is a this is a movie. The Buster Scruggs is a movie about American sociopathy, luck and destiny, um, and death or whatever. And and um, and it follows through rigorously on each one of those in a way. And 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 what made me like it more than the average Coen Brothers film is that it begins with. Utter coldness, right? It's as nihilistic as their humor gets. Buster Scruggs is a un, total unrepentant, through and through sociopath. He's a, a really disturbing character in a way. And I thought, if this is the whole movie, I mean, I knew it was, in, you know, vignettes. But if if this is the tone of the whole movie, I can't take it. And they and it just gets more and more tender until you get to the Zoe Kazan one, which is a tour de force I think and is remarkable and then the final one which is the most thematically definite of it which is they're all arguing I won't, don't don't want to give anything away but they're all in this coach these mismatched you know comical frontier people like a french guy and a you know overly rigid you know american victorian religious zealot and on and on and they and they're they're they all have a theory about how d- humanity divides into two kinds of people, but as they babble on, you realize the force of the segment itself lies completely elsewhere, and the possibility that the two kinds of people are the damned and the saved, or whatever. At the end of the day, I—I I don't know. I was really, ta- I was really taken with it. I mean, they're doing what. Nobody else does so distinctively. Why not make it a ritual to go and see once a year, once every year and a half, whatever it is, two years, go see the new Coen Brothers movie? They're going to bedazzle you in one way or another.
2: Oh, I'm 100% behind that, Steve. I mean, for all of my reservations and my theory about how they're collectibles on a shelf, I would never miss a Coen Brothers movie.
1: I I, I like what you are proposing about the final chapter, which um, has this dark, ghostly element, because I think that's right. I think... And I think what I'm responding to in this movie is that the cynicism and nihilism of the Coens is present. Uh, You know, we'll all turn to prairie dust in the end and whatever our theories were about the nature of humanity and how to navigate our course through life and whether to wear a black hat or a white one and whether to um, be cruel or to allow human mercy to, to bless our days. Um, somehow it suggests that, like, I think there can be two responses to staring into the void, right? Like, holy shit, just a bunch of molecules, probably no God, fuckaroo, what are we doing here? <laughs> ah, like, I might as well. Just, you know, be a, be a merry murderer. And then the other response in facing the bleak void with dark wit is to be like, no, let me light a little campfire and huddle up with, um, you know, with, with, with another, another set of warmth. Um, And I don't know, just that sweetness at the core of it, uh, sweetness in the face of bleakness, it just moved me so profoundly. Mm -hmm. I mean, one that I would love for us to speak a little bit about is All Gold Canyon, which is the fourth vignette featuring Tom Waits in an amazing performance as a gold prospector in a ludicrous, technicolor, Edenic, untouched, virgin Grassy canyon, a beautiful, a beautiful meadow with a stream uh, trickling through it, and undisturbed elks and owls everywhere. And Tom Waits beautifully plays this prospector who sets about despoiling the canyon, right? Just digging these human gopher holes all over it, trying to find gold uh, and you know, we we see as the skeptical owl and the skeptical elk look on at this madman who's turning Eden into a sad rubble heap. Um, and yet throughout, Tom Waits appears to be in love with the canyon and in love with the pocket of gold that he is trying to find. Mr. Pocket,
2: um, as he calls it.
1: Mis- Mr. Pocket, as he calls this this vein of gold. And essentially, it's like a romance between this prospector, who you come to love, and who, for all that he, you know, uh, takes advantage of nature's offerings, does it with a modicum of respect, even as he's just ruining this place. And you are so charmed by him and the kind of American romance of "Let's go west and it's all mine," and yet, of course, it's awful, and yet. He also is is sort of huddling up by the campfire with his own paramour, this idea of, you know, pursuing wealth and, and riches. I mean, it's just it's it's it, it's so beguiling and confusing and and strange. Um, and, you know, and then those gopher holes recur in the Zoe Kazan story. Like there, there's just so I want to watch this movie 20 times. I just love it. I just love it.
2: You know, it's so funny. I walked out of it wanting to watch some parts of it many more times and never to see other parts again, which which added to my sense that I wasn't sure what the suitcase was doing stuffed with all these particular items. But the Tom Waits story was absolutely up there. And interestingly, my two favorite stories, the Tom Waits story... And what we keep calling the Zoe Kazan story, which is called The Gal Who Got Rattled, and which is about a lot more than Zoe Kazan. It's essentially about a, a pioneer wagon train crossing and sort of all the social dynamics that happen on the way. Those two stories, I thought, were by far the most rewatchable and the most complex. And both of those were based on on stories not by the Coens. The, the Tom Waits was based on a Jack London short story. And the Zoe Kazan story was inspired by a story by Stuart Edward White, who's a contemporary of Jack London, so a Western, an American Western writer. Uh, and I mean, this is not at all to say, oh, those Coens can't write. But I mean, there was a finished quality to those those two stories, as short as they were. And the only story authored by the Coens that I thought had that same sense of cohesion and necessity and, and completeness was the one with Liam Neeson and Harry Melling is his name, the actor who played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies, actually, who plays this armless, legless, uh, elocutionist, I guess you would call him. That was a really, really wonderful
0: story, too. It just seems to me that the, that the cones were really trying to get at some idea about this is the basis for our national identity and experience. Like, here's where our character was in some sense formed in this environment in which any outcome was possible, which is exhilarating, but at the same time, you just get cut down at a moment's notice. And the ultimate outcome, you know, and you have the sense of a population-scarce land abundance in which some people will end up engrossing to themselves massive amounts of acreage and will then tell a story by which their triumph was inevitable. And, um, and what I love is they're getting at, a bad, getting at how not inevitable that was, how unearned that arrogance is going to seem. We, we've imagined that there's some ultimate justice, but it lies behind this last doorway that you see at the end of the movie, and you are not going to be told what it is. And it's that discrepancy, I think, that, that, that the whole movie's getting at in this really smart, really interesting way.
1: That's such an interesting theory of the case, Steve. I feel like I'm going to keep that set of ideas in mind the next time I watch it. And, you know, one other thing that I think fits into that analysis is the film's treatment of Native Americans, which is not uh, uh, particularly enlightened. Like it is they are they are the Native Americans. They are Indians of Westerns, like hordes of Indians arrive at various points and mete out violence upon the settlers, and...
2: And they're not uh, characters. They're seen only from a distance.
1: They are a force like nature. They They are issuing war whoops. They are scalping people. Like, the Hollywood idea of the Native American is not being explicitly problematized or addressed in the movie. But I don't... I think the movie is doing that very intentionally because of the ideas it is playing with around America's... Naivety and lack of reckoning around the West. Perhaps that sounds like empty justification for a movie that spoke to me, but it's not an accident that they've done what they've done with the portrayals of Native Americans in the film.
2: I agree, it's not an accident because nothing in this movie feels like an accident. But I, I'm not able to come up with even a working theory of why they show the savages, and that's a word that Zoe Kazan's character uses about the Comanches that that might be raiding, might or might not be raiding their wagon train. I don't know why they show the savages in the way that they do. I don't know if it's meant to be a reference or a spoof to the way that they're traditionally shown in Westerns. If the choice to literally never even give us a close up or a spoken line from one of the native characters is a way of trying to distance us from them or give them their privacy. I'm not sure. I don't think that there's any that they themselves are calling Native American savages. In other words, I don't think that there's active, you know, racial animus on the part of the filmmakers. But there's some hesitation to, you know, in a movie that's overturning all these stereotypes and cliches from Westerns and playing with the idea of Manifest Destiny in the way that Steve talked about, it is odd that those characters are props from old Hollywood. And I'm not quite sure why they, they maintain that status when so many other familiar Western cliches are being explored and right. turned inside the, out.
1: The woman in the blue dress who's a prop in the second story becomes the protagonist of the fifth story. And the Indians never become the protagonist of the film.
0: Okay, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, you can see it on Netflix. It is in select movie theaters. It is, it is cinematographically exquisite, so I agree with Dana. Seek it out in a movie theater if you can, uh, but check it out one way or another. All right, moving on. Uh, All right. Before we go any further, I'm sure we have some business.
2: Yes. The first announcement is that our annual call-in show is coming up. This is something we do at the end of the year at holiday time when we can't always meet in the studio as new stories are breaking. So instead, we ask you to ask us the questions for one week's show. If you call 323-628-1889 and leave us a question, any question, hopefully to do with culture and not our favorite brand of zit cream or something (laughs) equally boring, but something you've always wanted to hear us talk about on the Slate Cult Fest. We would love to answer your questions. Again, that's 323-628-1889. And secondly, in our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to be talking about feedback culture. There was recently an article in The Atlantic about this phenomenon that I think we're all aware of, of being asked to provide feedback on every single consumer experience you have, whether it's reviewing restaurants on Yelp or hotels on TripAdvisor it's an endless part of our lives to evaluate every experience we have, and it's driving some of us crazy. So feedback culture in Slate Plus. To hear segments like that every week and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the membership program in Slate, which is a great way to support the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and all of your other favorite Slate shows, and in return, you will get ad-free versions of those shows with extended segments and many other great benefits. So if you want to support the Slate Culture Gab Fest and other Slate podcasts, go to slate.com slash and join Slate Plus today. All right, Stephen, back to the show.
0: Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels follow two childhood friends over the course of their lives, uh, Elena Greco, who narrates the books, and her bewitching and equally brilliant companion, competitor, role model, Lila Cerullo, as they grow up into and possibly out of uh, their hometown, which is Naples, Italy. Uh, These books are IMO, Masterpieces of World Literature, I by just my esteem for them, really, literally, is boundless, um, uh, and they are that for telling both the intensely personal story of uh, of the childhood and young womanhood and adulthood of these gifted women growing up in a patriarchal society. Um, but also for telling the story of a mob-ruled, violence-dominated neighborhood and for recounting with penetrating subtlety the postwar decades of uh, Italy. They're both the great personal novel of our time and the great social novel of our time. And now they have come to HBO as a TV series. Uh, we will not listen to a clip because the show is in Italian. That would be pointless. But we are joined by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, to talk about these uh, adaptations. Uh, Willa, welcome back to the podcast. Hi. And I should add, Julia's going to sit out this segment she does not discuss for conflict of interest reasons uh, shows that appear on HBO. Will, let me let me ask you just to speak directly to why I mean the, why these books mean so much to r- readers.
3: You know, you described it as being both like the great personal novel and the great social novel of our time, which I, I don't know if I would say of our time, but it certainly is both a great personal novel and a great social novel. I think that one of the reasons that people love them so much are certainly you know, I can't speak for every reader, of course, but I think one of the reasons that they kind of caught on in this way that is, you know, usually literally reserved for like supernatural novels about teenagers like Harry Potter or something like the reason there was, you know, late night book release parties and Ferrante Fever and they said and they sold millions of copies, which is in a huge number of books, especially ones in translation from a small you know, publisher um, is because of the personal aspect of those books and 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 is I think it was sort of described as being about this sort of female relationship and about this very idiosyncratic and complicated dynamic of these two women. And I think also there's like in this store, in this these four novels, there's just like a real, uh, it's a real you know rags to riches like rise from poverty story about one woman, which is um, the main character Lanu. Um, obviously, even though the narrator of the books, maybe not the main character, but sort of one of the two main characters at and the narrator like as she sort of elevates herself out of you know neapolitan poverty and the slums and all this and like the degradation of her childhood um which i think is why some of the books have a lot more momentum than others do because it doesn't always like sometimes she sort of has is in stasis and sometimes she's actually like getting out through education i think that there's but i think that so i think that when you read those novels the social texture is in Is everywhere and in everything, Mm -hmm. but it's actually sort of the backdrop and you have to like, like what you really are encountering is this sensibility and this voice that is really unique in the way that there's so much plot in these books. There's so much stuff that's happening, but it it, it's there's a weird, like almost like listless quality. That's not the complimentary word, but I mean it complimentarily here where it's like one thing is happening and then another thing is happening. But it's not about the things that are happening so much that are sort of making you pay attention because she sort of she doesn't know what to make of all of them. She's indifferent about some of them. She feels crappy about other ones. Like it's it's that you're like with her and mm-hmm. in this sort of weird uh, like febrile and also cold voice, if that makes any sense at all. And and those are the sort of things that I think are why people love the books. And that mm-hmm. all of that stuff is extremely hard to translate into a TV adaptation or or a film adaptation, all the things that have to do with narration and voice are really hard to, um, and like you know unreliable narration especially have to, are really hard to bring into um, things that are filmed. So what I think that the adaptation does is actually to sort of flip it. So instead of having the personal narrate the personal narrative, which is like I think the real like the hook of the book the real hook of the show is like the social narrative is like to mm-hmm. see where they're from to see what to to, to to like really understand what was happening in their neighborhood in Italy in Naples you know at that moment
2: I was trying to imagine watching this how it would be to watch it if you had not read the books and uh and it's it's really i just i can't take my experience of the books it's too deeply embedded in my experience of those characters to imagine what it would be like i think it would be a good show i think it would be a, a good show about two interesting children in a you know milieu that we don't often see in prestige television right in in down and out post war naples it's also the first foreign language show that hbo's ever produced so it it brings this kind of air of Art film or repertory cinema or something to HBO in a way that's kind of welcome and unusual. It feels truly Italian, right? It's made by an Italian with actual Neapolitan actors. Most of them non professionals. That he went out and I think he looked at nine thousand children before he cast the two girls that play Lila and Lenù. Um, And I think it would be a quality show. But I feel like all the psychological depth and a lot of the social depth that I'm bringing to it comes from my knowledge of the novel. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You could enjoy the show on either level. But I agree with you, Willa. It doesn't ruin the book or betray the book in any way. And it shows, in fact, that Elena Ferrante's hand was in this work somehow. The showrunner is an Italian named Severio Costanzo. And Ferrante is credited as one of the writers, although she in no sense was, you know, it, there it's rolling she up was her giving sleeves him in the writer's so. room. Yeah, she was She was essentially, because as we all know, and as we fought about on this show, she's an, an, a pseudonymous author who chooses to remain anonymous and out of the public eye. So no one knows exactly who she is. But she was in communication with him and would essentially look at the scripts and accept or reject things in them. I don't get the sense that she was writing lines for the show, but more that she was saying, Leila would never say that, Lanou would never say that, this is bullshit, you know, that she was sort of a bullshit detector. And uh, and she really did her job. Like, there's not a moment that doesn't feel true to the spirit of the book, but as you say, Willa, there's no way that that, that, that um, depth, the kind of the psychological depth of the book and the kind of degree of analysis, right, the very analytical narrator that we're used to spending time with can be put into this story from the outside.
3: There's even a, a, a further complication, which is so one of the central tensions of all of the novels, and certainly the first one, is our narrator Lannoo's sense that, like, she's a perpetual runner-up to, to to Lila. Like that that Lila is actually the brilliant friend, right? She is actually the spark plug. She's the she's the the one who has all the ideas, the one who inspires uh, Lannoo to keep learning, and that you know it's this horrible fluke that she hasn't been allowed to continue her education and Linu has and Linu sort of imagines herself as like you know the grind like she doesn't give herself a lot of credit for all of the work she's done that keeps putting her like first in her class um in the novel there's um you know she's an unreliable narrator it's first person so like you you go along with her understanding of the scenario of of, of her sort of um limbing of her and Lila's relationship but there's like enough hints that she, like, might be just being a little bit too hard on herself. And certainly then – and then there's, like, the, the, the you know the sort of – I won't, like – this is so ridiculous to call it a reveal. But there sort of is a reveal at, sort of at the end of the um, first book, which has to do with the title, that, like, is literally, like, a linguistic reveal that I remember being, like, oh, my God, this has totally changed my – like, it just really, like, actually yeah. like flips your idea about what's happening in the book in a way that's really – I mean, tremendously, amazingly powerful. It's, like, the best – title play I've ever really read. Um, and when you're watching the show, she's not an unreliable narrator. I mean, even though you take her narration, that's not how we process film. Like, y- you process film, you-, you know, it's not unreliable narration. You feel It feels like you're omniscient, right? It's like actually what's happening. So this sort of imbalance between Lila and Lanu, which is in the books, but is probably a little bit overstated because we're in Lanu's own mind and she's, you know, downgrading herself so much. You know, you see some hints of them trying to compensate for that in the show where, like, they have people constantly describing Lanou as beautiful or, like, giving her compliments like she's pretty even though she doesn't feel pretty and, like, the actress has been given sort of acne and, like... It, you can see that they're sort of trying to mess with some of these ideas about Leno's own feelings about herself but it just doesn't really work. And all to say that there is like the imbalance that's in the book that is sort of um balanced out by by Lanoue actually being the narrator is really pronounced in the show where you have mm-hmm. this re- introverted, recessed, passive protagonist who's sort of like our point of view character. but all she wants to do is watch Lila and that's all we want to do too. and that's that is a dynamic in the book but it's like it's it's heightened in the show to the point that, you don't like, like, what is the point of Lanou? Which is not something that you ever feel in the book, right. because in the book, she's the one whose voice you're hearing. Right. And that's the whole reason to be reading.
2: Yeah, she's not even like a, a, a Nick in The Great Gatsby. She's not a wishy-washy, right? She's not a character who's there just to observe and right. be a proxy for the reader or something like that. She is a true, beautifully fleshed-out person, and mm. it obviously is harder to do that through the show. But can we talk about all the things the show does right? I mean, <laughs> I was absolutely stunned at how good this was. At the same time... It's it, it, to me it's completely immaterial that it exists because the book stands for itself. <laughs> yeah. But but it's so far from betraying. I feel like, and this must again be Ferrante's hand in it. But obviously, it has to condense events and leave things out. But the first episode, for example, which is about how the two little girls meet in the in the courtyard of this mm-hmm. kind of slum house project that they live in. Really touched on every single moment and honestly, from the first book.
3: M- might be better than like the first sixty pages of the book, which are like really hard. Like the first sixty pages of My Brilliant Friend are like kind of a slog. And after that it's like glorious. Mainly but mainly like, because of over...
2: the huge number of names <laughs> right. that we have to get yeah, to and know. Right? You don't
3: yeah. Um I will say, you know, I and I wrote about this, I reviewed this show, and, and one of the things I started out by complimenting and I think it is a very good adaptation. And one of the things I love about it is that I do think it sort of rescues the books in a way from this idea that they're like about female friendship in some kind of like rah-rah cheese ball way. I mean I'm not saying they're not about female friendship, but there's something very um that's like in the air right now. That's like very comp you would compliment something by being like, it really understands the, you know, the competitive but loving relationship between women. And you're like, actually Linu and Leela are like, their relationship is not like anybody else's. Like that is a really idiosyncratic personal dynamic. And it isn't, it is, you know, it's like to say it's about, it's like, there's so much else going on um that's a, a part of it but there's also so much like violence and um horror and poverty and like the the show you cannot like you can't not see all of that stuff you cannot see you know these girls are growing up people are getting beat up in the street as like a matter of course yeah. all the time they're yeah. getting beat up as a matter of course they're and you know they don't think about it they don't make much of it like there's right. it's very horrifying. Well, and over the course of the
2: first book, the action, essentially, insofar as there's action, is these two girls growing up, you know, competing in school at first, and then one of them proceeds in school and the other doesn't. And as they grow up, they're discovering together, not necessarily by talking about it, but just by observing it. You know that the world they're growing up in is a horrible, violent, misogynist abattoir. Right. And right. Uh, and that's something that will unfold in ever more complex and horrible ways yes. as they become adults and pursue romantic relationships. But it's set up just beautifully by this show, I think. Not to mention that the two little girls who play them, I've only just gotten into the teenage part, and the teenagers seem great too, and then of but course the, two you know, little the adults will come along. But there's a huge difference in child performers, right, which we've talked about on the show before, between the, the one that says their lines properly <laughs> and has the kind of appropriate expression on their face and Hits their mark, and a kid who who really evokes an inner life, and I think both of these two children, who are non professional finds, are just magnificent in their parts.
0: Right. I mean, to to me, the I loved everything about the novel and every aspect of it. But the thing that hit me as a you know male reader or whatever over and over again is you know when you grow up in a super provincial, mobbed up, and um, uh, hyper violent neighborhood. You're used to it. In fact, what's threatening in some way, or more threatening in some ways, than the violence in the neighborhood uh, is the wider world. That the, the idea, and, and what it traces so beautifully over the course of the first two to three volumes is becoming aware that the rest of the world is different, which is enormously alluring and liberating, uh, but also reacting to it in, in radically different ways, See, seeing that as a, as a landscape in which one might transplant oneself and then flourish. Uh, And then you become aware that you grew up in something exceptional and and very provincial and small-minded and in some ways grotesque. Or finding the wider world and the and the uh, uh, reflection that it casts back on your provincial world so terrifying and so threatening because you realize that you are rooted in that neighborhood, that it's you are bringing its violence and its spite and its retribution with you uh, out into that wider world. And so you stay, which is the dynamic between these, these two young women. And so one of the things that you get in a narrative uh, that's told, Visually, uh, and 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 doesn't really have that same intimate interior. Is you is you get right from the beginning how brutal the neighborhood is, uh, and how physicalized and dominance based the male relationships are within which these very fragile, tiny young girls have to grow up. And and that just it's, it's enormously powerful in the book. It's enormously powerful in the TV series. I love the adaptation. I just want to say quickly one reason why which is that you read these four books and you feel like i personally felt like they're masterpieces and i'm going to carry them with me for the rest of my life and rereading them is you know inevitable at hopefully at least two or three more times before i keel over and and you get this but it's too soon for me to go back and reread them now but i get to go back to the beginning i get to re-experience this extraordinary story this i hate to use the word but these two journeys which are just I, I'm just. I mean, I'm. I'm over the moon. I, and I want. One, one last thing, please read the books before you see this. I, I. do think you'll be aided in having read them in understanding the show. But also, they are these. these this. You know, there's only so much of this novel that can be captured by a film, no matter how. Um. Uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, faithful. It honors the original material. So that's where I come out on it. All right. Well, it's uh, my brilliant friend. Adapted from the novels by Elena Ferrante. It's on HBO. We should say that each season is one of the volumes of the book. So we're going to have four seasons. This is book one, season one, eight episodes. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of it. Especially if you haven't read the books, maybe come hit us up on uh, Twitter. Will, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Alright, well inspired by our segment on um, Elena Ferrante, we and inspired by an essay by Alison Herman in The Ringer about the art of ad- adapting novels and specifically Ferrante's, we thought we'd talk about adaptations and how and why books turn into movies. Why don't I start Julia with you? You sat out the you sat out the Ferrante segment, but you read this essay and you've seen innumerable movies that are, you know, taken from source material, literary source material, kind of seems like a hard thing to do. Is it it worthwhile? Does it tend to make good movies? Is there any correlation between good novels and good movies? There's an old bromide that, that bad novels tend to make good movies and vice versa. What do you think?
1: Well, all right. I think you can probably classify all adaptations of books or any other source material as to their purpose. Is each one trying to replicate the sense and feeling of the source material and give the people who were obsessed with it and people who chose never to experience it in its original form access to it through a new transmogrified form or are adaptations fundamentally interpretations, which cast a, an old work or a work in another form in a new light and thus draw new meanings and new potential interpretations from the source material. So the question is whether you are like singing the song, uh, essentially, is it a translation or is it an interpretation? Um, And I think both types of adaptation can be successful and satisfying to watch depending on your relationship with the original, but I'm much more interested in the interpretive kind, the kind that is uh, taking as a given that the source material is so strong and powerful that uh, what the adaptation is trying to do is tell you something new or different or shed new meaning on the work of the original uh, rather than just replicate it. And so, you know, I, 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 I that's how I classify these things in my mind. I think you can be satisfying in both modes, but I find the second mode more fun, if that makes sense. I'm not sure what the root of that is in my culture going experience, but that's where mm. I find myself. Can, can you
2: give an example, Julia, of uh, an adaptation that's a translation and an adaptation that's an interpretation?
0: Um,
1: well, I mean, I have not seen the Elena Ferrante series. I haven't seen it yet, but it seemed like a number of the critiques of it and uh, your description of your conversation of it were wondering whether it was in fact so faithful to the mood and concept of the original that it didn't actually amount to enough more of it or enough independent of it in this new format that it would mean anything to people who hadn't already had the, the primary experience. Um, you know, when I think of interpretations, I think of actually my early childhood experience going with my grandmother every few months to the American repertory theater in Cambridge in Boston, where I grew up and, um, and yes, I do think of Cambridge as being in Boston, sorry, separate city pretensions of Cambridge. Um where I got to see Shakespeare's works, you know, done in the in the kind of repertory theater style where it's, you know, a punk a punk Hamlet and uh you know, it's uh, the, the the fun of just knocking about an old Shakespeare text and putting it on the moon or in Nixon's White House or wherever you decide to put it. Um that early experience with interpretations of durably great works is part of what's making me think about uh, interpretation differently from replication.
0: Hmm. Uh, Dana, how do you approach this subject?
2: Yeah, we've talked about this before, Stephen. I know you have an an idea that I don't agree with, which is that you and you and your wife have this as an axiom that you should always read the book before you see the movie or the TV show. And uh, I mean, I can just think of well, for one thing, as a movie critic, that would just be physically impossible for me. I would never ever be able to stop reading books for any waking moment or have a waking moment (laughs) because there are so many adaptations out there. So I try to limit reading the book before seeing the movie to circumstances. Well, like the Ferrante circumstance, where either The book is a great work of art that I want to experience on its own, whether or not I ever see the movie or in a way the opposite circumstance. If the book is just like a big, pulpy, trashy bestseller that everybody walking in the movie is going to have read like Twilight, you know, or um, the Fifty Shades books, I try to at least (laughs) to the degree possible in turning their incredibly hard to turn pages read books that are not great books if they're being made into movies that are going to be big topics of conversation but I just don't think there's any way to be doctrinaire about it and when I think about some of my favorite favorite movies in the world I might not have known that they were adapted from something In a Lonely Mm -hmm. Place is a great example I've spent 20 years going around evangelizing about how great that Nick Ray movie is and then I only heard from you recently on this show a few months ago that the novel it's based on the noir novel by Dorothy B. Hughes is a great book I don't know how different it is from the adaptation and what Nicholas Ray did to change it. I'm very eager to read that book now, but I can't imagine that it will significantly change my view of the movie and that I'll feel like, oh, well, now the movie sucks because it wasn't faithful enough to Dorothy B. Hughes' novel. So you see what I mean? I mean, The mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz yeah. is based on you know a series of books. So so I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm just tossing around examples here and not advancing any theory of adaptation, but I will say that in general, when I hear that a great novel that I loved has been adapted, as was the case with the Ferrante Tetralogy, I'm not that excited to see, you know, I'm I'm essentially going in with this trepidation of like, how are they going to ruin it? You know, are they going to sentimentalize it? Are they going to oversimplify it? And, uh, and I'm really just going in almost with a damage control kind of idea rather than how can this be expressed in a different art form. It's really a surprise when and if that ever happens. And in general, I think I agree with the old bromide you, you cited up top that great novels cannot be filmed. I mean, Moby Dick is a great example. You know, it's very, very hard to imagine a successful cinematic adaptation of Moby Dick. And if there was one, it would have to be wildly inventive in some way or, you know, animated or in <laughs> an Esperanto or just do something <laughs> completely different. Right. I mean, a faithful one would just be absolutely deadly
0: so i look i agree with your you know you slurred me with the word doctrinaire and i'll i'll, I'll own it it's true there's no hard and fast rule because there's so many different kinds of transpositions from you know uh from book to movie so one would be the godfather which was just a kind of literary you know a, a best-selling potboiler of indifferent literary quality that was turned into you know i like one of the have handful of cinematic masterpieces of all time. Why would you bother going back and reading the Mario Puzo book? You don't need to do it. It's the great work of art is the, the Coppola films. Um, uh, and then you've got some um, uh, movies, terrific movies that started as books that were so cinematic in their sensibility and presentation to begin with, that you could go in any order, it really wouldn't matter. Um, Silence of the Lambs, which is, I think, a pulp masterpiece, like a genre masterpiece, but it was, it was written in such a overtly cinematic, blunt, totally effective, uh, cinematic style that wouldn't really matter which one you read first. So the, so the obvious, uh, exception to this, you know, is, is a work that has intrinsic literary value. If you do read it, After seeing it, you are going to have the, I mean, you know, movie stars implant, you know, their whole, the whole business of movies is to deliver images of human beings into your head that feel indelible and completely inseparable from the characters that they're portraying you are going to simply re-experience the movie in your head if you begin by seeing the, the movie but i want to talk about a phenomenon julie i wonder if you've sort of picked up on this too is is what that i find really interesting which is you now have long form television as the dominant visual screen based uh f- form storytelling And as everyone says, this means that it's novelistic, the sort of novel on TV. So you're getting this kind of cross hybridization between novel writing and TV writing. We could call this kind of the marathon man category. You know, William Goldman, who we talked about last week, you know, wasn't always sure whether he was gonna write a novel or a screenplay, because he was capable of doing both. And sometimes he would write a screenplay and sometimes he would write a novel and then he would adapt the novel you know, i.e. Marathon Man. And you're now getting more of that. You're getting novel. And also because TV is now prestige TV, you have really a validly literary people watching a lot more of it, believing that it's an art form, and not just a popular art form, but a serious art form, um, and assimilating it into their writing styles. You have tons of novelists in writers rooms uh, and tons of novelistic material that wouldn't really reduce down well to a two hour television show now being made in the multi-part multi-season episodic tv this cross hybridization it seems to me means that you know that adaptation is going to become absolutely a, a total common art of the screenwriter every screenwriter is going to have to learn how to do it but also novelists are just thinking in terms of visual and or cinematic images, because there's not such a deep conflict anymore between um, the page and the screen.
1: Yeah, I don't know yet whether Hollywood's obsession with, you know, original IP and almost everything being an adaptation of something, whether it's the concept of a Lego brick or an actual story, um, is beginning to change the way people think about other works that they make. I think it is affecting what types of people who are inclined towards writing choose to do and what forms they choose to write in. Like I think less about the novels that are written to optimize adaptation than the fact that people who might have written a novel, you know, in a different era now might be just writing on a TV show instead. Um, but, you know, to to your point about how seeing the actor on screen play the role can... Um, kind of obliterate the character of your mind. And I know I've read, I think I read when we were in Melbourne, my favorite passage from Calvino's Invisible Cities about one of the lost cities that Marco Polo describes in that book is the mental image you have of a city you have not yet been to and how it evaporates once you once you are confronted with the actual city. So I have never been to Cleveland. I have a mental image of Cleveland. Someday I shall go to Cleveland and that ephemeral notion will evaporate and that's sort of true of every character we read and conjure in our minds um, once we once we see them, and that's part of the power of novels. Um, on the other hand, I think that's why you know some of my favorite adaptations are of works so grand and glorious that there are likely to be multiple interpretations of them. And once you get to the place where you've seen multiple Hamlets or multiple Lears or multiple Elizabeth Bennet, um, then you 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 begin to feel less like each interpretation is poisoning the thing you experienced in the text. So I know that uh, Dana is not a particular fan of Kira Knightley's I am not certain that the Pride and Prejudice featuring Kira Knightley is the best Pride and Prejudice adaptation ever. However, I love the production design of that one so much. You know, when I think about I think here I'm comparing the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice to uh, various Jane Austen adaptations in the 90s, particularly Emma Thompson and Sense and Sensibility, the production design of the Keira Knightley installment brings to life the class issues uh, and how the Bennetts fared and the reality of living in the countryside in England at that time uh, in a way that previous versions didn't and offered a sort of pretty petticoat-ish version of such a life. Um, and I love that. And I love having had the experience to encounter that glorious book, which is one of my favorites through this other funny lens. Um, and it doesn't weaken the power of the
2: original or other potential adaptations.
1: But like, I, you know, is anyone going to make a, a different movie of The Godfather? Probably not.
2: Yeah. I mean, it seems like we're all talking around this mysterious central thing, which came up as well in the discussion of the Ferrante adaptation, which is where does a book live in your mind? You know, what what space does it occupy? And Julia, as you said about that Italo Calvino quote about the the city of your mind, I feel like... When you really love a book, a novel, the book of your mind cannot be despoiled by any adaptation in some way, right? I mean, it could be a- another great work of art could be made inspired by it, perhaps, if that adopter- adapter is very, very lucky. But that that space that a, a character occupies in your mind, which is not quite um, fully visualizable, right? I mean, to me, at least, when I picture a character, it's not as if I just cast them with some existing person. I couldn't just say in my mind, hey, you know what? Whenever I read The Great Gatsby, I see Robert Redford as Gatsby and, you know, there he is in the role. No, like the Gatsby that exists in your mind is this is this character that kind of keeps unforming and reforming as you read the words. Right. And maybe with each time you read the book, he changes a little bit. And so of, so, of course, in that sense, a great novel is always going to live on in your brain in a different place than an adaptation. They can't overlap in a way they, they sort of can't despoil each other, if that makes sense. But even if it can't be despoiled permanently, it can be sort of irritatingly buzzed around by a bad adaptation. And that is why, for example, if I hear that Keira Knightley, who is not a favorite of mine, is starring in an adaptation of a book that is a favorite of mine, I might just avoid it altogether. It's not going to ruin the book, but I might just sort of say, I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. The book has already done the work that it needs to do for me.
0: But let me just, I know we got to exit this segment, but let me just ask, would you encourage your daughter to see a film adaptation of Jane Eyre before reading the Bronte and knowing going into reading the book for the first time kind of how it ends and there's obviously a big secret and on and on and on shouldn't that be revealed by Charlotte Bronte the way Charlotte Bronte intended it to be revealed
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on that point, I think I would be I would align myself with you and your wife and your rigid doctrinaire positions. I mean, and I think in general, that would be my caveat is that like, if a book is truly a great life changing work, the way Jane Eyre is that just teaches you how to read and think in a whole new way, then... Yeah. You don't you don't see the movie first, especially because in the case of Jane Eyre, I don't think there's any movie that comes anywhere close to that level of, of greatness. No, so, yeah. No, yeah. No. There I'm I'm standing in front of the, the cinema door, blocking my daughter from going <laughs> in, shoving the book in her hand.
0: <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, this is they're going to be uh, competing in various opinions about this. So th- throw them at us on, uh, on on our Twitter feed. All right. Moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. I think we're going to do something a little different maybe this uh, week. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We decided this off mic because we were deciding how to divvy up endorsement ideas for this week because over the course of this week, as we were deciding on our segments, all of these great artists and and famous people who were meaningful to us kept dying. And yet we decided that we did not want to do obituary segments for them in part because we've done a lot of those lately. And we don't want this show to just turn into the who died this week show because that seems gloomy. Um, But also because it was almost just sort of hard to decide like who who matters more, whose work is more relevant to discuss, you know, who means more to us. And uh, and so instead, you and I just decided to do a joint endorsement that will be a discussion of three figures who have passed from the earth this week. And those figures are, as you might imagine, if you've been following Breaking News This Week, um the, the director Nicholas Rogue, who I would say is one of my maybe top 10 favorite directors and who I have tons and tons to say about. The director, Bernardo Bertolucci, who was important enough in film history that we we have to touch on him. I'm sure, Steve, that you and I have something to say about him. And also this curious, beloved, wonderful figure, Ricky Jay, who was so many things, a magician and a writer about magic and an actor in many films. And uh, and just someone who really kept alive a really centuries-old tradition into the 21st century. So those three are gone we are going to talk about them. Steve, do you want to take it away?
0: Uh, yeah, well, very quickly, I have one thing to say about each one of those people. Um, uh, the first is that Bertolucci uh, made one movie that I think is worth watching every couple, three years. Uh, the Conformist, it's uh, in Italian. He made it before he became super famous with Last Tango. And it's just it's just, it's just an astonishing work of cinema. I mean, it's just amazing uh world war ii um, drama but it's just a visual you know smorgasbord it's an incredible movie anyway uh nicholas rogue uh he made so many great movies i mean walkabout but i i you know is one of my favorite movies but i just love don't look now dana i, I that movie is so creepy it, i defy anyone to see that movie and not have it just stick with them you know in this kind of yeah, I don't know, queasy, uh, existentially dreadful way. Um, It's just a, it's just a kind of it's almost without a genre really but it's sort of a horror masterpiece but that's so reductive um and then finally ricky jay you know I, my principal association with him i have to admit is from the wonderful david Mamet movie house of cards uh he plays a, a a critical role in that movie he's great in it but then i read the finally the um the profile by mark singer and the new yorker of ricky jay and it really brings home what a you know singular figure this was scholar of magic uh and um but a recantor um a kind of man of mystery and and maybe you know among the greatest sleight of hand artists who ever lived and just what devotion to the craft of sleight of hand meant for him uh is just it's it is really worth seeking out and reading that mark singer profile of ricky jay
2: you know, about Ricky Jay, I'm going to follow that just up with something written by Ricky Jay just that I read very recently and, and found very worthwhile. And it, oddly enough, upon reading it, I remember thinking, oh, I really need to read more by Ricky Jay. I don't think of him as a writer. But in fact, if you go to his website, he has tons and tons of writing on the history of magic. And he wrote the introduction to this fairly new Taschen book, you know, the the, the art editor on, uh, on the history of magic. That would be a really, really wonderful holiday gift for anyone who cares about magic and the history of magic. It's a giant format book, for one thing. It's about, I, I'm not exaggerating, it's probably about two feet High by, you know, 18 inches wide or something like a giant thing that you can't keep anywhere but on a coffee table. And it's full of these gorgeous reproductions of magic posters through the centuries. Uh, but the end and it's in three different languages in English, French and German. So it's really more a book about the visuals than the writing, but it has this Great introduction by Ricky Jay that is just witty and uh, and gem-like and uh, and so full of erudition and knowledge about the history of magic and it made me want to just find more things written by him and read more Ricky Jay. So that's my Ricky Jay rec. Uh, On Bertolucci, I would agree with you that the one necessity in his in his filmography is The Conformist. The Conformist is. This Really, this movie about fascist aesthetics, wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's almost sort of the subject of the movie. It's this highly, highly stylized movie that's designed by this designer who often worked with him, Fernando Scarfiati, who specialized in just um, painterly compositions and, you know, contrasting colors and just these absolutely gorgeous frames. Um, but it al- also, in a way, there's something sickening about the beauty of the movie because it is all about, you know, that style, that kind of high aesthetic Nazi style. And the Conformist, the main character, who's played by Jean-Louis Trintignant, this actor famous from the French New Wave, sort of slowly gets... Seduced almost in a sort of banality of evil way, he's just this mediocre guy who sort of slowly gets seduced into into fascism. And the movie almost operates on you in the same way that the beauty you find yourself responding to ends up being the same thing that sickens mm. you. And uh, it's just it's a it's a really extraordinary work of art. Again, I'm just such an evangelist for the big screen lately, but maybe now that Bertolucci has gone, they will bring back retrospectives of his work on the big screen. And I would absolutely send people to see really any of his movies, but most particularly the Conform. On the big screen, um, and Rogue. Oh my God, Rogue is a whole story unto himself. I really wish I could have written an obituary for him, um, but it was the holiday weekend, and I was just not able to do it. But Nicholas Rogue is just unique among American filmmakers. There is nobody else. He didn't start a school, you know. He doesn't. He doesn't really have disciples. There's no one else who can do what Nicholas Rogue can do, and he does it all with editing, with color, with tools that only the camera provides. You wouldn't you agree, Stephen? I mean. The the terror, the utter unsettling terror that you describe in Don't Look Now doesn't really come because of the things that happen. I mean, there are a few jump scares. There are a few moments that you can cite as that scary thing that happened. But it really is all the match cutting and the use of color and the mood and the music. And there's something with time that he does. In so many of his movies, lots of people were writing about this wonderfully after he died. And maybe we can post some links to the places that wrote about it best. But he had this way of bringing different timescapes into one timescape in his movies so that all his Mm. movies, in a way, are about time travel. Of course, one, The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie, is also about space travel. Um, But Walkabout, which you mentioned, which is the story of these two uh, white children, Australian children, who get lost in the Australian outback and they run into this aboriginal teenager and kind of have this walkabout journey together, right? Is this movie that blends time frames in a crazy way? Where even though this is happening in the present day, it was made in the early 70s. You'll see these flashbacks to colonial, not even quite flashbacks. You'll just see images from colonial mm. Australia and kind of realize, oh, that is happening sort of in history or in their minds in the desert. And it's sort of happening in this place that no other filmmaker even tries to posit. And Don't Look Now actually uses the idea of psychic phenomena, the idea that Donald Sutherland, the main character, has some kind of um, second sight uh, to, to bring different time frames and places into into play in the present. Anyway, I mean, the way that he does that is so sophisticated. That I'm describing it really, really poorly. But I would send people to almost any Nick Rogue movie, but maybe Don't Look Now being his masterpiece. I would also note that Filmstruck, which is still around for a few more precious days before they shut it down at the end of November, has all of Nicholas Rogue's movies. So if you want to just go and completely binge out, if you're a Filmstruck subscriber, now is the moment to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Julia, what do you have?
1: Uh, This week I am endorsing something we discussed in its early episodes, um, and which I have stayed with, Uh, and which is so good. I would like to endorse season three of Serial, which I think is extraordinary and a truly profound piece of journalism and has just gotten deeper and better and richer and more interesting uh, and built on the promise of the few episodes that we discussed when we discussed it several months ago when it first began dropping. Um, The way in which that team has complicated their storytelling and uh, change their ambitions in terms of the scope of the types of stories that they want to tell about the criminal justice system is mind-boggling, galvanizing, inspiring from a journalism and storytelling perspective. It's just so excellent. So if you have not yet tuned into season three of Serial, uh, or if you have only idly been following along, I would encourage you to cue it up and keep listening.
0: All right. Well, I, for all intents and purposes, have endorsed already. So that's our show. Thank you so much, Julia.
1: Uh, My pleasure. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. We'd love to hear from you there. It's at slate cult fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.